Hello and welcome to Integrating Chinese Medicine with the Dow Health. I'm Elizabeth Cullen. And I'm Georgia Fong. And we are traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and acupuncturists. We are your hosts, providing an educational platform for practical ways to integrate Eastern medicine into your Western lifestyle. Throughout this podcast series, we will be discussing the benefits of getting to know our bodies in a practical sense and how to be an advocate for your own health. All information in the podcast Integrating Chinese Medicine with the Dow Health is for educational purposes only and was relevant at the time of recording. We recommend for any individual symptoms, personalised diagnosis and treatment to see a registered health practitioner. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. In this episode, we've had the pleasure of interviewing Rashida. Rashida Dungawala is a registered psychologist in Sydney, New South Wales. Currently working in private practice and feeling honoured to work with the clients she does. Rashida has completed a Bachelor of Psychology and a Master's in Psychotherapy and Counselling with membership to the Australian Association of Psychologists. She has had a lifelong love affair with wanting to understand people, their experiences and inner worlds, how it intertwines and leads to the way we behave, which led her down a path of travelling and living all over the world while studying psychology. She is passionate about mental health advocacy and working towards destigmatizing mental illness. Rashida had a desire to create a more holistic approach to mental well-being, which led to the creation of Flow State. Flow State offers workshops and mental well-being content created by a mental health professional for organizations to ensure mental health remains a priority to audiences, small and large, in a creative way. Rashida is also a lover of nature, art, music, chai and sleep all the great things in life. Good afternoon, Rashida. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. Thank you so much for having me here today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. We've been so excited to have you on the podcast. <laughs> excited to be here. <laughs> so I guess um, let's start with you telling us a little bit about Flow State Space. For sure. So I basically, I started Flow State um, in, I think, April of this year. It had been an idea that I was sort of sitting on for a really long time. Um, but it's basically uh, the name that I'm going by to do workshops, uh, mental health workshops um, okay. for different organisations and different um, companies. Um, I... I've run like a fair few workshops for other organizations. And so I really love doing it. I think that it's such a great way to spread um, information to like a larger group of people. Um, and I really like to make them very interactive and creative. And so it's sort of a little bit different. So yeah, Flow State's basically, um, you know, a platform where I can, I can run these workshops. Um, and I also, you know, do things like this, like podcasts and things through Flow State. Brilliant. Awesome. And what did you, um, where did you find the gap that was needed for the mental health workshops? Well, I feel like a lot of um, workshops that are provided are, are maybe, you know, they're all, they're all obviously brilliant. And I think it's really important that um, there is that sort of people are wanting more psychological support and people to come in and talk about it. But I think 
it's sometimes a little bit clinical or it's a little bit, you know, um, it's not necessarily very creative. I think I approach um, my therapy with clients in a very holistic way as well. So I try and incorporate that into my workshops. Oh, um, so that's probably a little bit of a point of difference and, you know, just making it a little bit fun as well. And with the interactive piece as well, you know, you will be in some of my workshops doing some reflective exercises. We'll be doing some like actual um, somatic sort of grounding and mindfulness in the workshop. So that's also you know, another dimension that people don't realise mental health incorporates, but it does. Um, so, yeah. So, Rashida, we wanted to ask, what are the reasons that someone would seek out support from a psychologist? Yeah, such a good question. I think that, um, you know, the reasons are really endless. So there's no set reason why someone might decide that they want to seek support um, from a psychologist. Um, but I think, you know, we we typically think that people only start attending therapy with a psychologist if they have something, you know, like really severe going on or they have a mental illness, but that's not always the case. Like, of course, people do come if they're having, you know, if they are diagnosed with a mental illness and they're having an episode um, but also people that are just wanting to understand themselves better, understand their behaviour better, understanding their thought patterns and their relationships. I think, you know, most, like pretty much every presentation that we'll be working with or, or um, issue that someone's facing is going to be relational. So everything that you know happens to us and everything that elicits some sort of emotion is derived from our relationships. So whether that's your relationships with family, whether that's with your romantic partner, your friendship, your work relationships, it's, that is what's usually going to be causing, you know, some sort of emotion or feeling. Um, and so usually people come to sort of work through, the, work through that and a psychologist will help guide you in understanding what might be happening and understanding, you know, what those dynamics might be at play and um, really help you figure out ways to to cope as well yeah, yeah of course yeah of course and I guess you've touched base on there Rashida but why is it important to learn about our own behaviors and thinking patterns I think it's important because it just helps us obviously gain some self-awareness into understanding maybe what's quite automatic what has just become you know such an automatic behavior or automatic thought pattern um sort of being able to discern what is helpful for us in these patterns of behavior and thought and what might be actually maybe unhelpful or unhealthy or causing us some distress and so if we can sort of discern what these behaviors and thought patterns even are then mm -hmm. we can start to really sort of um yeah separate what is rational, what's irrational, what's helping us, what's not. And then I think with us understanding ourselves better and our own behaviour and our own thought patterns, we start to also be able to accept and understand other people's and ultimately, yeah, ultimately we want to be able to understand that everyone does have different thought patterns and patterns of behaviour so that we can actually, you know, live in like a, you know, cohesive society yeah. So I think oh, yeah the more we understand about ourselves the more we understand about others our relationships it just it just helps overall yeah um, it's almost you know we're such strong advocates of getting to know yourself through seeing mm -hmm. a psychologist here mm -hmm. and I think it's the biggest gift you can ever give yourself 
to be honest. Yeah. Once you learn about your own behaviour and, and yeah. your thinking patterns, you do become more understanding of others. Mm, exactly. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And more understanding of yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, Rashida, you spoke briefly before about having more of a holistic approach in your psychology sessions. So we wanted to ask what does a typical psychology session look like and what should a patient expect? Is it more than asking, how do you feel? Yeah, definitely more than just asking. <laughs> Psychologists in the media <laughs> are really, really ruined it for us. <laughs> but, um, or, um, you know the counsellor on how to lose a guy in 10 days? Yeah. <laughs> Some of it's the so like <laughs> honestly, the chats that I'm in with like colleagues and stuff like um messenger chats and things, we're always going on about who was a good representation, who just completely hit the mark. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> going by what you see on media, you'd never want to go and see a psychologist. But <laughs> um so it's a great question because I think that it does really differ depending on the therapist and the obviously the person um, coming to the therapist, what they're coming for. Also like things like age um, and the type of model of therapy that the therapist practices and the way that they just uh, practice in general. So it does look very different if you're working with a teenager or a child versus if you're working with an adult that has, you know, complex trauma. Um, but Usually, like typically, if you're in coming to see a psychologist in a private practice setting, it'll be you and that person in the room. Um, it's it is obviously there's a lot of talk therapy, but there are models of therapy, like I said, that incorporate um, some somatic work. So that's more doing um, practicing the skills in the room together, and that's you know getting into your body and doing some mindfulness, doing some grounding, teaching you those skills to to manage your nervous system whilst you're in the room with a therapist so that you can start practicing practicing them outside as well. Yeah. Um, obviously, traditional talk therapy will be sort of this exploration and this um, how do you feel questions, but obviously that then leads to um, more sort of types of questions that will help you understand your behaviours better and maybe understand some of these patterns. Um, yeah. You'll also sometimes be doing like play therapy if you're working, you know, across the left when you can do things with um, actually like tactile stuff. So getting things in the room to engage your senses or play or, you know, do things like that. If you're doing exposure work, you might actually go out with your therapist and depending on what you're trying to expose mm. yourself to, there'll be that level, like that dimension added. Yeah. Um, so it look really different and like really diverse depending oh, wow. on yeah what you're coming for and who you're working with when you say exposure work Rashida do you mean in the way of like being in a comfortable environment like close to the ocean or say for example going for a bushwalk with your psychologist 100% there are people that do that mm -hmm. I think depending on what you might need um the help uh exposing yourself to like whatever that um thing is then it's going to change depending on yeah, what, what you need. And it'll be done, obviously, yeah, in a very safe environment. And you wouldn't be getting to that level of exposure until you built a really strong rapport with your mm, yeah. therapist and that it's a therapist that is trained in exposure, like prolonged exposure work or um, exposure therapy. So, mm, yeah, yeah, it's something you'd be starting from the first session, but it could be part of your journey um, 
if you if you were coming for that. Yeah, right. Okay. And so I guess what is a realistic time frame that you recommend to patients for seeing a psychologist? So say, for example, if we suggest to a patient, look, it might be time to see a psychologist, a common question after the how do you feel question, we <laughs> usually get how long would I have to go for? So I guess do they only need one session or is a psychologist someone who can guide you through long term in life? So say, for example, someone that you may check in for maintenance with or through different mm-hmm. life stages? For sure. So, yeah, again, I think that people can feel a little bit hesitant to attend because they think that, oh, you know, this is a lifelong commitment. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be. Like, again, depending on what you're coming for, some people only will need a couple of sessions. Um, okay, yeah. Probably definitely more than one because the first is usually just like an intake session and you're just, you know, building that rapport and getting to know each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some people may only need a few sessions to, if, if their issue is like quite situational and it's more around understanding and learning how to like cope with that situation mm-hmm. and then you learn the skills and then, the you know, you, you move past the situation, you, you're okay again. Mm-hmm. Um but then other people may, yeah, do actually end up in therapy lifelong. But mm-hmm. obviously the sessions start to maybe, yeah, they turn into more maintenance sessions. So you might start off with quite a um, high level of frequency and then spread the sessions out further and further apart mm-hmm. as you go along. But then, you know, if you find yourself again in a in a life stage where you need more support, you can increase the sessions again. Yeah. Um, also people that are that train in like psychotherapy that a psychotherapist which I'm also trained in as well as being um a registered psychologist that form of therapy (laughs) that form of therapy is usually like long term so it is something where you'd be going you know you can go for years um and that therapist like because it's it's like a relationship like no other really it's really hard to explain how how sort of intimate and involved these relationships can be um, and person becomes, you know, that perspective that you're getting from them and that guidance that you're getting from them, you know, can be useful for, for like, for years. Their whole lives. Yeah, yeah for your whole life. And once you find the right psychologist, you know. 100%. This is what I also would definitely say is that yeah. regardless of the model of therapy, Research shows that the number one determining factor of therapy having a benefit to you or working well is your relationship with your therapist, is the rapport that you have with your therapist. And that can take, that can be probably maybe the most um, taxing of this whole thing of starting therapy or, you know, Mm -hmm. continuing therapy is that you sometimes do have to shop around to find that person that you really do feel you know, understands you and you feel safe with, and then you can start, you know, working together. We work quite closely with a number of psychologists around the area, and we support patients' mental health with acupuncture, although that we can support energetically with moving stuck chi and emotion. However, we do recommend patients to see psychologists to unpack the weight on their shoulders in a safe space, like we were talking about just before. So, Rashida, mm-hmm. do you usually recommend downtime for a patient post-appointment to reflect and absorb? De- always, always. I think that um, one, of the, one of the first things I say in, you know, either the first or second session is to create a little bit of a ritual prior, like 
10 minutes before the session or 20 minutes before the session and also post. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sets it up in a way that, you know, that space then of therapy is can be contained. Um, you know, you, you don't often know what's going to come up in that session. And so having this sort of transition period on either side can be really helpful if you need to. And also, you know, well, currently because we're doing therapy via Zoom, um, people are often just logging off from their work, whatever they're doing at work, and then logging onto their session. And then we want to be mindful of just then logging off your session and then going straight back onto the computer for work. So even if that's just, you know, going and sitting in the sun somewhere for 10 minutes or just, you know, if you're actually coming to your therapist face-to-face, just sitting in the car and, like, listening to some sort of music so that you have a little bit of, like, pocket of space on either side. Um, and I think that can be so helpful. Similar, I guess, to, to you guys as well. Like, you know, I think that, I mean, I do acupuncture, obviously, and I, I always sort of sometimes need that little bit of, like, downtime before and after, and it just sort of contains it all into this nice, like, space. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like sometimes you have the lesson in, say, for example, acupuncture or in a psychology session, and then sometimes we call it like the homework afterwards so you can reflect uh-huh. in space on what you've learned through that time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And we do recommend after the acupuncture session, similar to what you say to your patients, Rashida, about not doing anything too high intensity yeah. or going straight back to work or if you can have your mm-hmm. session after work and then start to close down the evening and close off your day yeah and as we were talking about just before Rashida about those zoom sessions due to lockdown um as we are currently in the middle of a lockdown in Sydney New South Wales and a lot of Australia um we do keep hearing the terms burnout compassion fatigue and pandemic fatigue I don't think Mm. compassion fatigue and pandemic fatigue actually are being spoken about a lot enough enough would be the word but what do these terms mean Rashida and how do you know if uh, us as as humans or individuals have been affected Mm, it's yeah it's really common at the moment to be experiencing burnout um even the compassion fatigue and pandemic fatigue Mm. I mean well, with compassion fatigue, it really is, you know, in the name. Like mm. when you are, I think, and it is interesting because sometimes when I'll do even my workshops or, you know, even when I'm with clients, mm. a lot of the concerns and questions are around like, how do I support the people around me? How do mm. I make sure that they're okay? Or they're all, everyone's always concerned about the people around them and some more than others. Mm. And that is what it is. You know, when you are, exerting so much energy in showing compassion to everyone around you Mm. to the point that you are then you know the there's maybe blurred boundaries or you know you're Mm. not actually checking in about how much that is taking from you and how you know whether you are actually getting nourished or nurtured in any way in return Mm. that will then end up leading to getting you know having compassion fatigue yeah it's actually a term yeah. And, you know, it's it's actually a term that was, I think, originally coined um, more with healthcare workers um, because, I mean, this is all, you know, any allied health, healthcare professional, we are constantly providing support and help to others. And so that's, 
you know, it's a big part of our job. And then if it's a big, if you've entered into that sort of industry and career, you're probably someone that, you know, does show that compassion and empathy and support to the next level in your personal life. Mm. But we do have a lot of people that, you know, maybe aren't healthcare professionals, but are still, um, you know, that they're so empathetic and compassionate to the point that they're not really directing much of it back to themselves and then getting completely fatigued by it. Um, I guess with with the whole pandemic side of things, so I've been trying to look up for more research about the compassion fatigue and the pandemic fatigue. And the only podcast that actually talks about it is the BBC podcast that they have it. They speak about it and start with health, but they then go into the general population and their fatigue with looking at the news every day and being mm. sad about the world and being compassionate. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, yeah. we are not built to be, first of all, sort of in this level of perceived threat day mm. in, day out. We're not, you know, created to be under this level of sort of unknowns and, and um, yeah, yeah, we're consumed by it totally, and so and there's layers to it. Like it's not just that we are having to watch it; we're grieving, like we're mourning for things that are lost, and then at the same time, we're consuming new information and new, you know, distressing sometimes um, stuff that's going to just completely fatigue us and exhaust us and burn us out. And yeah. then with burnout, that also was a term that you know, traditionally was coined just for people like in the workplace, but we know now it goes far beyond getting burnt out at work. You know, you can be burnt out in your personal life as well. Mm. And I mean, how do you know that you've been affected? Usually the unfortunate thing is that sometimes you only realise once you're already in the groups of burnout, um, you'll, you'll usually be feeling so depleted physically as well as psychologically that you actually have to either, you know, take leave or, you know, you just, you, and it will start to potentially cause some physical um, health issues as well. So usually it's once someone's actually experienced burnout that they will then maybe start to say, okay, um, has, you know, what has maybe led to this and what's happened. Yeah. Um, to start assessing what they could adjust or change in their lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. So other than, I guess, the quote that we've all heard, um, you can't pour from an empty cup, look after yourself first, um, how do we avoid falling into burnout and or compassion fatigue or the pandemic fatigue? Or how can, And also how can we support ourselves when these symptoms do start to arise? Yeah. I would be assessing, you know, how much each of these sort of relationships or people around you take and how much yeah. you feel like you receive and if you are noticing that most of the time you're coming away feeling like you have just you know been you're feeling depleted after every interaction or after every you know thing that you're involved in it's mm -hmm. usually a sign that maybe we need to start adding more into our life that can be nourishing and it can be in the really small things um, and it is that, you know, it's a cliche for a reason, like filling our cup before we can do anything for anyone else. Yeah. Um, but it's not always about just, you know, then ridding ourselves from everything and just, you know, being alone so that we can recover because like yeah. I keep saying, you know, relational being. So it's about checking in on those relationships that do nourish you and do, and engaging in them more, yeah, um, yeah, sure. spending more time with, 
those people or spending more time talking to those people. And then with the burnout, it would be, depending if it's what environment or domain in your life it's happening, um, it would also be about, you know, checking in that what are these warning signs that I usually get when I'm close Mm -hmm. to burnout and then identifying, you know, okay, when I start to actually notice these warning signs, that's a good indicator that I need to start implementing some sort of strategies around this so that it doesn't end towards that burnout. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And being on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. And those warning signs can be physical as well as cognitive. So, you know, you guys obviously see so many of those warning signs actually in clients mm-hmm. before they've actually reached the burnout and they yeah. may not even be putting two and two together. No, and, yeah. it's, and it's usually their body telling them first yeah. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And we always have that conversation that our body tells us in different ways that we're not coping. Yeah. 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 It does. It does. Giving us those alerts. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when we're thinking, like, from a psychological perspective, it's not separate to our body, right? Our nervous system is what actually is creating a lot of the um, emotions and feelings that we end up eliciting. And And so when we, you know, it is all intertwined and when it's basically working in overtime and in overdrive, it mm. will actually start to to sort of break down. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I guess we see that energetically where an emotion when the body's not in balance will then manifest in the body in a certain mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And it may be the physical symptom that a patient comes to the clinic for, but usually once we start to unpack and, and give yeah. that emotion space, then... And they begin to reflect. To yeah. 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 Exactly. And mm. staying on the topic of the pandemic and the lockdown, Rashida, mm. have you noticed an increase in anxiety clinically? Definitely. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I've got some people, uh, a lot of clients that obviously are experiencing more anxiety and I think as a whole we all are. Um, mm. Also some people where their anxiety was derived from um you know, the way that our world usually is. And so actually having a break away from it has caused their anxiety to subside. So that's also been interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's usually an indicator of someone that is, was probably heading towards burnout um, because (laughs) of the amount of they had on their plate and the fourth break has actually made them, you know, check in about that. But Overall, I think, yes, because we, you know, are obviously we're not as connected with each other and we're social beings. We need to be connected. Mm, Um, And fair enough, we've got the connection, but it's not in the way that we are made to connect. So this, the virtual connection and the, you know, that sort of stuff, it's just not cutting it on a long-term basis. And then, yeah, and then the anxiety, I mean, anxiety is usually derived from, you know, the unknown, it's like um, our brain is like a problem-solving machine and it's constantly scanning and trying to find solutions and answers to problems. And at, a lot of the time at the moment, we don't have we don't have clarity and we don't have answers to a lot of the unknowns. And so that's really not allowing any space for the anxiety to sort of just, um, you know, find its way out. It's just yeah, there. True. Yeah. And we talk a lot about being responsive and not reactive to anxiety. So, Rashida, are there strategies where we can learn to accept anxiety and be responsive and nurturing rather than reactive and deflecting? 
Yeah, I would say that, you know, especially now, first of all, just accepting that the anxiety is there for, you know, it's your body's body doing what it actually is made to do. So it it's basically thinking that, yes, you need protection. And so it is having this experience of anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's doing everything that it needs to be doing um, to try and keep you safe. It's just sometimes that it, you know, doesn't assess the situation correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's wrong. And so I think when we go into sort of the deflection and the reaction, it's because we almost think that that um, response of anxiety is somehow you know, wrong, or it's like our body failing us that we're feeling anxious about everything that's going on. But it's yeah. a completely normal reaction to an abnormal yeah. situation. For sure. Um, and I guess yeah, you so we nurture that. Mm, and exactly. Listen, almost listen to the anxiety rather than push it away. Is that? That's it. We want to practice some self compassion. So if you yeah. notice yourself, even in your self talk, being judgmental around the fact that you're feeling anxious, like flipping that. Um, that sort of self-talk and saying that, no, actually, you know, it's like this overhelpful friend that ne- that's next to you, the anxiety chattering in your ear, trying to get your attention. And that's what it is, really. Yeah. Yeah. Have you listened or have you read the book, The Amygdala, My Friend, oh. or The Warrior? I haven't. I haven't. Oh, it is so cute. It's, it's, a, ch- it's a children's book. But, um, yeah. like, I'd recommend it for all adults. Yeah. Um, but the, when the amygdala is stressed, it, it tries to help you, but it sometimes can get a bit overprotective. Exactly. Well, that's it. That's what it is. I, and, and you can put a name to it. Yeah. You can put a name to it. You can put a, you know, a picture to it, like visualise something so that you can actually then start to treat it more like a, a sort of an overhelpful friend rather than this enemy. Yeah. Um, but this is not dismissing that, you know, anxiety is absolutely exhausting and sometimes, you know, it is something where you, you just do not feel like talking to yourself in that compassionate way. But, you know, when we sometimes take a step away and notice how we might be talking to ourselves when we're feeling anxious, we're just adding fuel to the fire, you know, mm-hmm. we we're already in the in the act of overthinking and ruminating. And when if we're doing a deep dive into it, starting to question why and starting to blame ourselves, we're not really gonna, you know, it's not gonna allow it to subside. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's a good reminder as well for patients, even when they do feel better, say for example, and they're like, Oh, I don't really know if I need to go to my session to see the psychologist, that even mm-hmm. when they're not feeling anxious, that's the perfect time to learn these type of skills and techniques about talking to your anxiety as a friend so that you can try and implement it next time? A hundred percent. I always say that, you know, if your nervous system is so heightened that mm. you're in an episode of anxiety or depression or whatever it might be, you're you're just in survival mode. So you're just trying to survive. So then sometimes in those moments when you're trying to add, you know, in those moments we want to slow down and simplify. And mm. then when you've actually yeah, got the capacity, your nervous system sort of, you know, regulated again, you actually have the capacity, the energy, the mental space to start thinking about skills you can implement and how how you might, like how, what they actually look like in action. Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah. And I guess another emotion that's coming up or feeling for people at the moment, Rashida, is vulnerability. 
Um, clinically, what is your experience with patients and vulnerability and how do you notice that it affects people's life? Yeah, vulnerability is, you know, I, I love working with people that struggle with their vulnerability. It's usually, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it is scary to be vulnerable. It's extremely daunting. Um, it, yeah, it can be, um, you know, linked with, there's obviously reasons why people struggle to be vulnerable and whether that's fear of judgment or other experiences that they've been through that has taught them you know through those experiences they they feel like they've learned to sort of shut down and and stop that vulnerability Mm. um but vulnerability is really where you know we connect with others and it builds that connection um with people like the relationships that we're in and if we can be vulnerable we can allow for deeper connections with those people around us and in like current day we need that connection with people around us um but I think back to this idea of like being compassionate to yourself and being you know understanding if you are struggling in being vulnerable Mm. um knowing that it's not something that comes easy it's not something that you know we're innately necessarily like born with it's something we can some we can learn we can learn any of these skills and learning how to be vulnerable is one of them yeah Mm. definitely and being guided with a psychologist can help so much with vulnerability exactly because I think also like in a therapy session if you do develop a really good strong um, foundation and relationship with your therapist it's a place where you actually practice being vulnerable Mm. yeah Um, over time you know you will and and I've seen it, you know, in, in person that clients that have started off extremely sort of shut shut off and closed down and they want to be there, you know, they're showing up each week, but yeah. it takes them that time to trust mm-hmm. and vulnerability is so tied in with trust. And then once they can actually develop that trust and recognize that it is a safe place, they can start to be more vulnerable and then they can actually start to benefit from that overall experience. Yeah. That makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. And like, does this, is this right, Rashida? Like if you're vulnerable um, and then you create that trust, say, for example, with a psychologist and then you use that almost like as an experiment with another person, um, whether mm. it's in a friendship or a relationship, and you learn that that one's safe and that the psychology mm. that you're learning with a psychologist is safe and then that you're building those connections of safety and vulnerability through trust. Yeah, it's like this, um, we have a, yeah, it's like a corrective experience, basically. So usually if you do have struggles with vulnerability, there's been a time where you have actually been attacked or threatened or judged for being, you know, showing up as yourself or, you know, saying what it is that you feel or whatever it is. And so you've you've learned through that repeated experience that this is not safe for me. So Mm -hmm. once we start have those relationships where it becomes more safe we start to have like a corrective experience and then if that corrective experience we would hope sometimes it does come from the relationship with your therapist you start to yeah emulate that in your other relationships with people and that can play out in other parts of your life as well so Mm -hmm. you build the trust with your friends then family then work relationships Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth is that right yeah yeah definitely and I mean it is something where we're never going to know how you know what dynamic is going to actually um be created amongst ourselves and someone else so you know of course there may be 
little blips in the road. But mm. if you're in therapy and you're practicing this, you know, you've got that support, con- constant support base um, to explore it in therapy if that was to happen. Yeah. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just it's an exposure and, a you know, through that exposure you actually end up potentially having, you know, reframing that idea of what vulnerability can feel like. Yeah, right. which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, Rashida, we wanted to check in with the term window of tolerance. We wanted to know what it means and how we can manage it and what should we be aware of when our window of tolerance is getting smaller? Yes, such a good question. I mean, no, like it's usually I'm talking, like teaching people about the window of tolerance. They've never even heard of it. So it's really cool that, and I'm sure obviously you guys have because you're doing it as part of your work, but the window of tolerance is, is basically our is our window that when it's open, we are like our, our nervous system's quite regulated, we're feeling pretty neutral, we're feeling pretty capable mm-hmm. and we've got capacity. And when it's closed, we're either in two states, we're either hyper aroused or we're hypo aroused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so yeah, so if you were hyper aroused, you'd be more anxious, you'd be angry, you'd be um feeling, you know, those sort of emotions would be listening and you'd be hyper aroused. And then if you were hypo aroused, you'd be more in like a free state where you'd be numb or you'd be zoned out, you'd be foggy, you'd be fatigued. And so if we're in either of those states, our window is closed. Um, And we want to assess, you know, we want to imagine like the actual window and how open or closed it might be. Mm. And we op- like we actually allow the window to open by doing things like therapy, but not only therapy, like I'm, as I'm saying, I'm such an um, advocate for holistic support. And yeah. we know that, you know, when it comes to like trauma and certain presentations, it's not going to be just resolved through talk therapy mm-hmm. um, or traditional. It has to be a combination of all different things. Mm-hmm. And somatic work and Chinese medicine and acupuncture, massage, um, all these sort of additional supports help actually allow that window to open um, and work on our nervous system. I always see it as like a panorama of like the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the harbour when your window of tolerance is really open. And then when it's teeny tiny, it's like a telescope. Yeah, right. But then, you know, really little like a pin or something like that. I don't know. That was terrible. No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's it. So basically when our like our when our window is open and we're able to open it up more often, we're able to cope really well with whatever's mm. coming, you know, in our direction. Um and yeah, so that's that's what the window of tolerance is. Do you see that in your work as well? People's yeah. windows quite yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we check in with patients' windows. Yes, yes. Yeah. Of, of how they're going and, and start to use that as a thought as a form of self-check-in as well if, if, they, um, if they're familiar with the window of tolerance or if they're working with that with their psychologist as well, then we'll work with that from an acupuncture and energetic perspective too. Yeah, that's so perfect. 
Yeah. And it's yeah. really interesting to see that some patients have a predisposition to be more of the anxious side mm. or more of the numb the side, the hypo. Yeah. So it's yeah. about finding what works for each individual mm. in terms of management and self-care. Yeah. yeah definitely. definitely. Yeah. So if you're in hypo, like hypo, as you're usually in fight and flight, and if you're in hypo, you, you'd be in freeze. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting, Rashida, you see a patient's development in their time at the tra- in, in treatment and at the clinic as well. And, you know, we always see if a patient works together with acupuncture and Chinese medicine at the same time as unpacking those rocks like we're talking about on the shoulders with seeing a psychologist, you notice their window of tolerance, just how they respond to things rather than react and their quality of life, how it improves for them over that period of time. Mm. Oh, yeah, massively, right. massively. I mean... You know, somatic work, body work, and you know, which includes like Chinese medicine and acupuncture, has been like immensely benefit beneficial just for me personally. So you know, and and I when I have clients that are doing a whole array of different types of therapy, you know, but obviously it's not accessible to everyone. That's the problem, and I wish that you know there was some sort of a um, like training where it actually incorporates all of it. Amazing. Imagine um, if the mental health care plan started to include some form of body therapy as well. That would be so cool. Oh, yeah. It is amazing. And I mean, there is like, you know, you can do um, like there is therapists that will be trained in that somatic work or EMDR, right. which does slightly, but obviously not as intense as what um, you guys would be practicing. Mm. But it's so important. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And I guess even when talking about the access side of things, you know, how brilliant having those type of meditation apps as well that help you with body scans if you can't access a body therapy too. That's it. That's it. I know there is like a lot available. I think there's, you know, obviously there's something to be said about being in a room with a person if you're doing something like, um, you know, somatic work and body work. Um, But obviously there is so many um, options out there now. and you know, they, they are, they're really, really effective. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And I guess when we're talking about vulnerability as well as someone's window of tolerance, maybe if it was a little bit small at the time, um, for a patient who we see in practice who finds seeing a psychologist too daunting um, as they're hesitant to broach certain topics or sometimes we call it like that little black box that you really don't want to open, um, what would be your recommendation to them? For someone that's finding it daunting to start with a psychologist? Yeah, yeah. So say they're like, I really don't want to go into that or there's that topic that I've tucked away from years before and I'm too scared to unpack it. Um, What would be your recommendation to that type of patient on on starting with a psychologist? I would say that, you know, a a good therapist is supposed to be going at your pace. So they're there not to, you know, you're the expert on yourself in the room mm-hmm. and they're there to just really, sometimes it is about just holding the space until you're actually ready. Mm-hmm. No therapist is going to be pushing some sort of an agenda. Like it's not, it, it's not for the therapist, it's for the client. And so it will always be at the pace of the client and it will, especially when it comes to things like trauma, um, it's meant to be slow, you know, yeah. it's not meant to be a fast process. You are meant to actually be doing this work really, really slowly. Mm-hmm. And 
also not in just one go. You know, you're not going to have a whole session just doing a deep dive into everything that's ever happened to you. You, you'll, you'll, yeah. Therapists will be managing it in a way that actually allows like that emotion to be contained and so that it's not then um, turning into like re-traumatizing you or re-triggering you um, for session. And so knowing that, and so that's why I would say it is really important to sort of find out um, what sort of training your therapist has had, um, what sort of, you know, continued professional development they do, what areas of, you know, do they work in do they have expertise in the things that you're wanting to work on because not every every therapist does like we we can actually specialize in different areas we have areas of interest um so really be um you know really be um, picky don't be afraid to be picky about that because this is your journey going into therapy um and if you are scared you know and and most people are when they're starting tell the therapist yeah. Um, and then be able to actually, you know, hopefully reassure you as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess on that on that note, Rashida, I guess a message that I think is important that we get across today is that for some patients, it, it can be expected that they may need to meet with one or two psychologists, or like it is normal to um, see a range of psychologists before you may feel comfortable with one. Is that yes. Is that something that, you know, does happen? Well, yeah, really common. And um, so I should put a put a thing in, a note in here that we at the moment can access 20, so someone can access 20 sessions per calendar year with a Medicare mm-hmm. rebate on them if you get a mental health care plan from your GP. Yeah, exactly. And which is great, you know, it offers... Um, yeah, a rebate on those 20 sessions and you're not limited to just then only going for those 20 sessions. You can still see the psychologist outside of the mental health care plan. You just won't get the rebate. Um, The practice that I actually work at, the Indigo Project, we have a a sort of an offer in place where whoever you start your therapy with, because we've got everyone's profiles and you can do a quiz, if Mm. you feel like they're not the right um, match for you, like they're not the right fit, we actually rematch you with someone and it's an indigo pays for the session. Well, that's amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's a, a really good, like, you know, way to to know that, okay, if I start with someone and then, you know, I, you know, it's therapy can be expensive, you know, if I have to then start again, hmm. that's covered. But, you know, different practices may offer different things. Hmm. Um, I would th- treat it like, you know, this potentially is going to be a really, really, integral relationship in your life and it's maybe going to be a long long term relationship so you want to make sure that that person that you're working with is that right person for you um and yeah we'll start there and uh, um in terms of those though that are that feel like they might be getting pushed into it because of friends or family suggestions or partner suggestions, it really also does have to be something that you feel like you're actually ready for. Um, It it may not be helpful if you feel like you're only going because, you know, people are telling you that you should or people are telling you that it'll help you, you know, really being ready for it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, so 
We wanted to know as a friend or as a family member, what is an effective way to check in at the moment during the pandemic in words other than, are you okay? So if one of your friends or somebody close to you, you can see them struggling, Mm. um, Mm. aside from saying, are you okay? Or you need to see a psychologist. Mm. um, What do you think is an effective way to help support someone mentally and emotionally at the moment? Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, are you okay? It's are you okay? They're coming up as well. And it is now turned into, you know, this sort of, we feel like it's maybe the only question that we can ask, but it's, it's, it's a closed question. So I think sometimes, you know, if you were to ask, are you okay? And then the person said, yes, people may not know how to then move that conversation forward, Mm -hmm. even if they've obviously been noticing that that person's not okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So trying to use language that allows for more of an open dialogue and like an open question so that it doesn't, you know, that person may not just shut that conversation down by saying one thing. Um, So, you know, how have you been feeling lately? I've been noticing um, these things. I'm feeling, you know, worried for you. Um, Can I help you with anything right now? If you're, you know, it can even be, you know, have you eaten today? You know, those sort of questions. Like it doesn't have to be so directed towards like their mental health or, you know, what you're noticing there because you're obviously noticing it in certain um, warning signs. So what are those warning signs and maybe using that as a way of opening up the conversation? Yeah. You've been drinking more lately. I've noticing you haven't been eating, you know, how you usually eat lately. I've been noticing this. And allowing that to maybe be an opener. Um, And sometimes, yeah, 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 and and yeah, sometimes just being present, not not even having to, you know, being present enough or checking in enough that that person recognizes that you're there, so that when they feel that they might be ready to come to you, they they remember that. Oh yeah, you know that person is always checking in on me and always, you know, asking, you know what I'm up to and so maybe that will be a person that I feel like I can talk to yeah yeah and for somebody listening who has noticed a friend's behaviors change and can see that they're struggling I think those questions will be really helpful for them yeah um what are the next steps in supporting a friend or a family member and what is the appropriate way to suggest seeing a psychologist I would um sit with the person and, you know, help them research or look for, like, professional support options. Um, If they, you know, if they have, if they haven't necessarily said anything, then maybe I would say, you know, if you, if you see a psychologist and you're finding it beneficial, you can say, hey, you know, I see a therapist, I've been seeing a therapist for this amount of time, if you're comfortable in sharing that. And, you know, so that they can actually observe that there's someone in their life that's already on that journey and what that journey's been like for them mm-hmm. um, and putting it in a really, you know, positive light so then they can feel more encouraged and confident that they can do it too. And yeah. then if they do agree that they are ready but they don't know where to start, you just sit with them or you offer to, you know, take them to the GP to get the mental health care plan or call up the practice, you know, to help to sit with them on the phone while they book in the appointment. Yeah. Um, those two things can be really helpful as well. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. It's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. So to finish off, Rashida, we wanted to know what are your top three tips to support your mental and emotional well-being? Mm. 
I would say number one is trying to get um, good sleep at night. Love sleep. Sleep is on the top of the of the you know food chain when it comes to overall well being, and yeah. I don't think spoken about enough and I don't think people realize like how important it actually is in keeping us functioning yeah um and so if your sleep is you know sort of out of whack and you're really struggling then incorporating some sleep hygiene like all that stuff that does get talked about but yeah. really trying to be disciplined with it um yeah. makes such a difference such a difference mm-hmm. and then probably I would say um, if you can, you know, getting into the sunshine, just getting out there, like we are so much at home right now. And so even if it is just for that five minutes out on, you know, in the sun outside your house on the footpath, like that's all you need to do. But as long as you're doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say stay connected. Um, when we feel when we feel really low like we know that we do have a tendency to sometimes withdraw and isolate um and we don't feel like talking to anyone but it is the time when we do need to try and connect in and it doesn't have to be that you connect in to tell people how you're feeling and you know have those conversations it can just be a small connection in with someone Mm. each day okay okay yeah and that great yeah and what would what would be practical way like as a little tip um of a way that people could connect if if they were struggling and feeling withdrawn um could they could they talk about something like something they're interested in rather than an emotion yeah I think right now obviously it is really difficult because um there's not much that we're actually even doing so you know what do we even talk about? Like, what have you been doing? Not much. Like, we're all just sitting around. So, obviously, that can feel like, oh, gosh, I don't have anything to talk about. Um, but, you know, if you've been watching a TV show, mm-hmm. if you've been listening to some music, if you use, like, online forums, if you're, if you're a gamer, if you're, you know, um, if you've been co- eating some different type of food, if you've been cooking something, anything as part of your day that you're doing yeah um something you wouldn't have, I guess yeah yeah about that right okay oh Rashida that's been so good to talk to you yeah it was so good thank you so much thank you so much for your time all right thank you so much for having me I really really appreciate it and really grateful to be asked to be on here Oh, I was just, yeah, we loved having you. So thank you so much. Yeah, and I know I learned so much from that chat. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> I hope the listeners learned something as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll stay safe, Rashida. You too. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye. Bye. Bye.